Shabbat Shalom, everyone, and Mazel Tov. It's a, it's a new thing for me. I have to learn how to talk to people and not to a camera. But for those of you who are watching online, you're not forgotten. <laughs> so uh, it is very exciting, of course, for us to be back in a moment where people are actually in the shul celebrating a double bar mitzvah. It's very, very nice. And over the course of these, uh, well, it seems like a series of lockdowns that it was, that my office was flooded often with calls of people complaining about, and understandably so, about the great pain and loss that they had in not seeing the people they love. Grandparents not being able to see their grandchildren, brothers and sisters not being able to see each other, cousins and friends being distant from each other. And so what we, over the past year and change, what we have increasingly grown accustomed to was an, excuse me, an intense, concentration of our inside and outside lives. Our inside lives became very, very small, and our outside lives became almost non-existent. Now that the world is opening up again, thank God to the miracle and blessing of vaccines, the space between our inside and outside world is going to shrink altogether, that families are going to be, uh, are going to be rejoined once again. And in place of all those phone calls where people were calling me up and complaining about lamenting how they weren't seeing their family, I'm going to start getting the calls that I'm more used to about people complaining about their families. Which reminds me of the saying, you know, the only happy families you know are the happy families that you don't know well, followed by the other saying, the only normal people that you'll ever meet in your life are the people you don't know more than five minutes. But the fact of the matter is, of course, that all happy families seem happy from the outside. I remember as a young kid, after my bar mitzvah, my parents had a beautiful album made. And only later in my life did I realize when my parents ended up moving out of New York, of course, moving to Florida, packing everything up, them giving me some of the photo albums from my childhood, did I sit down with my parents and they said to me, well, you know, so-and-so had to sit at this table because he couldn't sit with his cousin so-and-so. They had a business falling out. They couldn't talk to each other. And the entire photo album of seatings at tables were actually a strategy about how to avoid putting certain family members with other family members. Which, once again, is to say that from the outside, family seem happy and you don't see the strife and rancor and disappointments and disagreements that fill every family, which actually is the remarkable and surprising thing about anti-Semitism. When you actually think about the things that anti-Semites say about Jews, for example, if you look at the protocols of the elders of Zion and you actually shouldn't read it, but if you have no choice, the things they say about Jews are wholly unbelievable. For example, that there's a council of a select number of Jews who have a plan about how to take over the world. Now, anybody who knows Jews know that we can't agree on anything. We can barely agree on the, on the day, the day of the week that it is. 
Summarily, the ideas that anti-Semites have about Jews, that there's a Jewish plot against the world, that the Jews put a satellite up in the sky with lasers to hurt people, that the vaccines are a control method that Jews are using to control the world, that Jews have plotted using the banks to subvert the world order. Once again, anybody who knows and understands Jews knows how wholly unbelievable that is. A few examples. Do you know why there isn't a Jewish pope? You ever ask yourself that? Like, usually most religious movements have a single religious leader. And this religious leader is responsible for not only setting the kind of philosophical and theological tone of the religion, but they also handle disputes. Have you ever asked yourself, why is it that there's no Jewish pope? Or, let's say you don't want to use the word pope. Why isn't there a chief rabbi of the Jewish people? In fact, to wit, in Israel, there is a chief rabbi. There happens to be two of them. One for the Ashkenazic Jews and one for the, for the Sephardic Jews. And of course, there's an entire world of Jews who don't even respect what the chief rabbis say. They have their own chief rabbis. You want to know why there isn't a Jewish pope? Because everyone would say to themselves, you know, my cousin went to school with him when he was young. He wasn't such a good student. Or they'll turn around and say, who does he think he is to tell me what I should do? Which once again is a reminder that Jews are famous for their disunity. I remember reading years ago the autobiography of Natan Sharansky. If you're about 40 years or older, the name Natan Sharansky will be very familiar with you. And I can tell by the people who are nodding their head who's over 40 years old. Thank you. I don't have to look at your driver's licenses. Natan Sharansky was what, what was known as a refusenik, a Soviet refusenik. There used to be a, uh, a political entity called the Soviet Union. It was a communist uh, block of countries. And uh, Judaism was uh, not officially, but unofficially, uh, Jews and Judaism had to go underground. They weren't allowed to be Jews in public. It was considered to be a subversive religious force. There was a number of Jews starting in the mid-60s, late-60s, who were adamant in terms of observing and pro proclaiming their Jewish identity publicly. Many of them wanted to make aliyah, to immigrate to Israel, but in order to immigrate to Israel, you'd have to go to the Soviet government, you'd have to make a request for an immigration visa, and as soon as you submitted the paperwork to immigrate out of the Soviet Union, guess what happened? The next day you lost your job. Your spouse probably lost their job too. All of a sudden, your mother and father, your brothers and sisters, you, would all of a sudden have black cars following you wherever you went. Later on, you would probably be put into prison. Natan Sharansky was one of the most famous of those Soviet refuseniks. They refused to stay quiet. Eventually, he ends up emigrating to Israel, and Sharansky writes that in the early movement of the refusenik movement, of the Jews in the Soviet Union, that there were at least a half a dozen Jewish organizations in New York that were raising money to lobby and put political pressure and do other things against the Soviet government. And he said they learned early on that as you wrote letters to each of those six Jewish organizations, you could never let the other organizations know that you were talking to the other organizations. Because they hated each other. 
And yet, while Jews are famous for their disunity, there's something also very true about us. In this morning's Torah portion, we read famously about Jewish disunity. Moses, who you would think would be a person beyond reproach in the Jewish world, faces yet another rebellion by his cousins. What the Torah provides for us is an insight in terms of what, not what the Jewish family looks like from the outside, but what real family life is like on the inside. Disagreements, competition, rancor, all those things. And yet, this very same people who are in the midst of this bitter, bitter kind of civil war amongst themselves, hundreds of people follow this rebellion against Moses. They're all cousins of Moses, for example. They're all from his tribe. This very same people who are broken and filled with disagreements to the outside, to the Canaanites, they seem like a unified block, and they're unbreakable. And we are no different. The Jews are filled with disunity. Every Jew has at least three opinions. And yet, in moments of crisis and danger, we are remarkably a tight-knit family. I'll tell you one story. Just before the founding of the State of Israel, if you're familiar with any of the history, you'll know, once again, there was a lot of disunity. There was the party of Ben-Gurion and the Haganah as a military unit. There was Menachem Begin and the revisionists and the Irgun and the Lechi and all those other things. And the, uh, the nascent state of Israel had almost no weapons. They had no bullets. They had no guns. They had no nothing. And they knew that they were going to have 12, 13, 14 Arab armies invading their borders within weeks. The American government allowed quietly through Czechoslovakia the sale of a massive amount of surplus arms to these Jewish groups. And Menachem Begin's revisionist party militia organized a boat filled with guns and weapons to make their way to what would be the state of Israel and those guns, bullets, and weapons would be a safety, a savior to the state to be. When the boat called the Altalena came to the shore, Ben-Gurion's militia, the Haganah, shot it and blew it up. Menachem Begin barely escaped with his life. Such was the competition between these two groups. For the record, at the bottom of Frischmann Street in Tel Aviv, right by the beach, there's a memorial to the Altalena. Next time you go to Israel and promise yourself it'll be soon, you'll go see it and you'll remember this morning. 20 years later, just before the Six-Day War, a unity government was formed in Israel in the face of that great crisis. And who was the symbol brought into the government that it was truly a united country? Ben-Gurion and his Labor Party invited Menachem Begin to sit in the government. Because once again, while we are filled with disunity, we are still a family.
and in crisis, we are together unbreakable. Shabbat shalom. A safe and healthy and good summer. We should have more times together, close up, and uh, look forward to more of that. And a mazel tov to everybody.